Where are you? So how you doing today, Brian? Well, I, uh, I like how much territory we covered uh, in this particular episode of Lead.exe. I feel like we really got into uh, a, a great uh, breadth of uh, areas where I think you were just saying, you know, we, we dealt with almost equal parts technical and leadership. Yeah, I like it. I think this is probably like one of our most uh, in the weeds IT <laughs> architecture episodes we we've ever done. Maybe uh, Jensen Hendricks and Robert Sunkner are are a close second, maybe tied. But um, you know, I think you know we we really delved into virtual desktop infrastructure, disaster recovery. Um, and then on the leadership side, you know, we, we really went into, you know, the whole mentality of leaders eat last and, um, you know, being there for your staff, um, being an example leader and negotiating, uh, lots, lots of good nuggets in there, man. Absolutely. It's, uh, it all comes down to where are we positioned to be able to deal as leaders with these demands of an always on culture. And, uh, that is something that is, uh, likely only to continue to impact us, uh, particularly in roles as uh, business leaders and technology leaders. Um, but you really do have to spend time making considerations around your your talent, uh, your resource management from both the talent component uh, as well as um, your systems and downtime. So we uh, we address those things, and I think part of the core of what we discussed today is that communication is key. Being able to mm-hmm. explore options, um, being able to uh, really be uh, coming from a place of empathy with what both business needs are as well as your talent needs. Um, those are the things that really gear you up to be the most effective leader in addressing always on challenges head on. All right. With that, let's uh, go ahead and now hold them back and go into the episode. Rocket. All right, thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. Today we're talking about uh, a topic that's near and dear to both of us, I think. <laughs> um, really, the leadership demands of navigating through uh, always-on expectations. So there's a couple of facets that uh, immediately come to mind for me, and, and some of these things I think that you've already worked uh, quite uh, ardently to solve for some of your own environments, Nick, uh, which starts with the architecture, right? When you've got uh, demands that uh, system resources, network, you know, all of those things that are work-related, they don't turn off at 5 p.m. They're always available to people no matter what time of day or where they geographically are located. how as a leader do you start to wrestle with uh, the challenges of putting together an architecture that's going to fit that set of expectations? Yeah, and I think uh, you you made a fairly good point when we were talking offline right here before we started is that, you know, the consumerization of IT once again has, uh, you know, bitten us, Um, you know, between Google and Amazon having their 99 point, what uh, was it, 11 nines or something like that (laughs) uptime? Ridiculous. Uh, which means they'll be down like five minutes um, <laughs> once a year, um, has made the expectation on IT um, pre- pretty difficult, right? Um, people are coming into the office and they're expecting that they can work just like they do at home. Um, and, and, you know, our environments at home are a bit more complicated and 
and you know, even when we're talking about the work environments, some most of our work environments aren't even anywhere as complicated as I imagine what Google or Amazon or Apple ha even has going on with the development size and just probably sheer server farm own data center architecture. But, um, you know, consumers are kind of, you know, doing as what they say, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And we're kind <laughs> of standing way down below, looking up, trying to trying to make our environments just as good as theirs are. Um, and, and I think how you kind of get there is you start with your low-hanging fruit first, right? Um, at least it's the way I see it. It's like, okay, are we hosting our email in-house? Well, you know, maybe it's time for somebody else to do that. Um, I don't know if you... Brian, but you know, I hated updating email servers. Um, you <laughs> shut them off, you update them, you apply that patch, and you hope that that sucker turns back on, right? <laughs> and then if it doesn't turn back on, you hope that your email on your backup server is actually catching the email. Um, so There's I think probably we, a, a book of liturgy to be written for the prayers that IT people speak when they're dealing with system reboots. Jeez, oh, I think it's that whole thing is, I think everybody has that box sitting somewhere. Um, whether it's in a server rack room or even just just in an office space going, that that box hasn't been off in eight years. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what it does, and I'm not going to turn it off. <laughs> no one wants to be that guy. But, but, but the way I look at the way I've kind of done it in the past is I've, I've attacked it with a low-hanging fruit, right? Um, so let's get our email off-prem. Let's, let's, you know, give it to Microsoft. Let's give it to Google. Let's give it to Amazon. Just, just pick any one of the vendors, Barracuda, something, whatever. Um, I, I would say your, your biggest bet is to start small, right? And innovate in small increments is what Ryan Deed said, and I think in our sixth episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the uh, I think part of what you just touched on with email, there are those points where, when you really have interactions with other business leaders, having an understanding of what the expectations of the most critical applications are, getting that out on the table, that may be fundamentally different for people who are business users versus those of us who are sitting on the other side of the network room. Um, for instance, you know, most business types have some form of ERP or centralized uh, management system for contacts and finances, finances, and um, all of those things that are critical for operational day-to-day uh, -day business. But that might not really be the number one most critical system. I know as we went through recovery time objectives for our own business continuity planning, email was far and away the number one yep. system that everyone said we absolutely cannot deal without that. Um, you know, we start hemorrhaging money every hour that goes by that that's not available. So um, that's another 100% agree. And I, I would add to, you know, it's funny as we're talking about this uptime and you, you brought up ERPs and CRMs. And when you look at it from the endpoint, it's always re reaching your customer is the most important endpoint. Mm -hmm. And I'll add the telephone onto that, right? You know, a lot of us have had, uh, you know, an in-house PBX system that we host, whether it's, you know, um, Avaya or Cisco or Mitel or whatever that, that we've had to deal with, you know, even that on top of it, right? You always had to have, you know, a, a VoIP PBX engineer on staff too to make sure that thing uh, was up 24-7. But uh, but I 100% agree with you. It's almost always that that endpoint communication with the, with the end customer that is the most important critical application. 
For sure. So, you know, I think tying that to your comment about the low-hanging fruit, you know, that may not just be technical low-hanging fruit. It may be from a disaster recovery perspective. What are those things that we need to ensure have fault tolerance built into them uh, as part of their base architecture? Email is certainly one that, you know, I think it's it's pretty easy to identify. Everyone suffers uh, when that thing goes away, despite the fact that we all complain about the volume of crap in our inboxes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, once you kind of go through that exercise, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, virtual desktop infrastructure, because I know this is an area that uh, you've explored and I think would argue you've solved. Um, there are a lot of different approaches to getting there. And uh, I think there's a lot of pushback from, you know, some who would uh, kind of align themselves with this old guard, you know, that having... Uh, spinning disks, having, you know, hardware with uh, local drive storage uh, is superior uh, to having a, a virtual environment. So I'm interested in your take on all that, Nick. No, I, I love virtual desktop environments. And let me say, you know, um, as much as I love it, you know, it's like with anything else, there's use cases where it probably doesn't make sense. Like uh, the Department of Defense for the United States is probably not a good environment to be doing a virtual desktop platform. Um, you do not want anybody being able to spin up a desktop anywhere, <laughs> no <laughs> demand. So, so I just want to start with that caveat. But um, I would think, you know, as, as we think of, um, you know, virtual desktop, the hard sell always is that, you know, we go from, you know, having assets, you know, that we purchase, we buy physical laptop machines, and then, you know, it kind of depreciates them. It's been a life cycle that we've kind of done for a long time. So we kind of go from being these CapEx things to these OpEx. Now, all of a sudden, all these virtualized desktops are licensing cost fees to Microsoft and licensing cost fees to Amazon or, or whoever you pick to host it. Um, but But I would say, you know, when you look at it this way, what, what's always been a boom for me, virtualizing desktop, is that it greatly frees up your IT staff's time. Just think about the time, you know, if, if you've ever been a help desk technician, which I know that's where a lot of people start in the IT field, is if you've been a help desk technician, somebody's installed a virus somehow, whether it's through an email or or a file or plug in a USB drive in, and, and think of how long it takes to restore their roaming cache profile. Um, you know, from Active Directory, pulling it from the server, and you're hoping that that's, that, you know, profile wasn't corrupted on the main server that you're using. And then then if it's corrupted there, then you're going to your backup domain controller to make sure that that's not corrupted there. Um, and virtual desktops have kind of taken away this problem. You know, somebody, you know, installs, clicks a virus, um, all we do is we throw away their machine, spin it up from a backup from a day before. You know, they might lose some of, some of the files that they worked on that day, but the downtime for the end user is no longer IT standing there going, well, um, let me go get another hot swap from out of the back and then plug it in. And then, okay, now we need you to log in. Now, once you log in, it's going to take it, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to then download your roaming profile. Um, you know, and, and to a lot of end users, this is just gibberish speak. It's like, how come I can't just log in and this thing works? Um, where's, where's all these, you know, it, where's all these files I had saved on my desktop, right? That's where everybody saves everything is all, all their files on their desktop. Um, but I would say that's always the hardest sell um, to me is that, you're, you know, it's like with change management with anything, um, you know, people will struggle, you know, going, you know, to some website to grab their email, right? 
I mean, people are just adverse to change in general and change management. I think when, when you undertake a big project like this, um, needs to be managed very well because when you go to the desktop infrastructure environment, um, a lot of times you're changing your Windows experience. Um, I'm going to say Windows for virtual desktops because Mac doesn't virtualize any desktops, at least as far as I know. Um, but, and then so when you do that, Windows 7, you know, you're taking away a lot of the slick features. You know, you're not letting them change their wallpapers. You're not letting them <laughs> normally um, do some of these things that they're used to. But no, um, no dancing dinosaur mouse pointers. Yeah, no, and it just makes global policy changes easy. It, it just makes management so much easier. There's a learning curve for your engineers because your backend environment has instantly become a ton times more complex, and you probably need to hire engineering talent who knows how to do um, virtual desktop infrastructure, whether you ro roll your own VMware, Citrix, uh, Zen desktops, or do Amazon Workspaces, um, or even Microsoft's new product, their own virtual desktops. You still need somebody who knows how to manage them in the back end because you're still responsible for patching Windows and rolling your updates. But but the greatest thing, as I keep rambling on here, is that you know you have <laughs> one golden master image, and all you need is one engineer to change the golden master image and everything else just flows on through. Um, it takes a lot of work to get there, but once you're kind of there, your end user's computer just becomes a dummy terminal. Um, and it's difficult for end users to understand that. They're like, oh, well, you've taken my computer from me and now now you give me another one. They're like, well, it doesn't matter. You just have a virtual desktop. You just log in here. Your computer lives in some data center. Um, but. But I mean, it, it, it's always a tough sell, especially because of the, you know, the OPEX, CAPEX um, thing that we always talk about lately. I mean, that, that was the big deal with going between a hosted email and, um, you know, in-house email, right? It was the same conversation. Right. Yeah. And, you know, from the always on perspective, I think there are immediately a lot of advantages. And, you know, we talked a little bit about disaster recovery, but in, you know, Consider something that is maybe a a a, a more um, controlled type of disaster, right? Like uh, the backhoe scenario. You've got construction going on uh, in your city block, and something disastrous has occurred that doesn't necessarily directly impact your uh, work environment, but suddenly you've been cut off to everything mm -hmm. that you're dependent on. Um, being able to tell people to, you know, pick up their thin client or their zero client and, you know, go work from home. And, you know, that may need to be for a three to five day uh, type of uh, stretch of time. Um, now you've just simplified actually providing them with something that is far more analogous to their direct working at the desk work experience than something might be like, go home, we'll walk you through how you configure VPN on your home computer. We'll make sure that you've got, you know, um, all of your antivirus up to date, you know, so that uh, yeah. we can, you know, eradicate those worries and, and all these additional hoops that you would have to jump through without having that type of option available. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and you brought up the whole thing with the VPN and, um, I was going to bring that up too. You know, most end users have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about VPN. They're like, oh, that thing that I need to log into. And then I log into it and I close the window and I lose my connection and my network drives never map. I got to click on some windows.bat file that does some voodoo <laughs> magic and connects me to network drives. Um, you know, as, as we've, we've 
virtual desktops really makes it easier for your end users on the front side. It, it makes it harder on your engineers on the back end, um, for sure. But for your end users, which is who your customers actually are when you work in IT, um, you, you're, you're making it easy for them, which which is a win-win, in, in my opinion. And, you know, one of the great trade-offs is security right there, right? Most of the virtual desktop products, you can lock them down so that, you know, anyone can plug any USB they want to in that computer. You are no longer worried about what that actual local machine is doing. Plug USB in it. I don't care. Um, it doesn't touch my environment whatsoever. Um, you want to blow up your own machine? Go for it. You know, you want to take that that uh, USB key that you got at some, you know, unknown conference that you found on the floor and plug it in the machine? You know, go for it. That doesn't have any impact on us anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just great stuff. But like I said, the, the change management is almost always the hardest thing to deal with. Well, there's some cost components also that you have to be cognizant of as uh, a leader where, you know, effectively uh, gaining the buy-in from your organization to be able to make a decision to move forward on an initiative like this. Um, you know, one area is, you know, you've already addressed the shift from CapEx to OpEx, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you've already made a large capital investment in, you know, recently procured hardware, um, so you've got, you know, some of the the latest and greatest in laptops from whoever your preferred uh, hardware manufacturer is um, then you've got you know some of those things already in your environment that can effectively um, be the connection points uh, for your vdi and you no longer have to worry about you know where are they at in the hardware refresh cycle you know are do we have things that are coming close to being out of support or out of warranty yep, it doesn't even matter anymore you just run them until they die, and uh, yep. and then then you just replace them with a Chromebook or whatever your you know next uh, preferred device is, or whatever they uh, want. Managing, yeah, 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 exactly. You want a MacBook, and before trying to join that thing to a domain was a nightmare, but now it doesn't even matter. Um, you know, someone you know that CIO we know pretty well at another firm. He's like, you know, we, we just give whatever they want. We don't care because that's not where they work. Um, just doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> Right. They literally have nothing on, on site but a Cisco Meraki device, right? Um, and an internet connection. So, you know, do whatever you want on our environment. You know, their their PBX is in the cloud. You know, their desktops are in the cloud. Um, but, but like you said, you know, that your CapEx, OpEx, you know, we, we just bought the latest, greatest machines for our end users. Well, that's good, you know. Um, you can still use a machine. That shouldn't factor in too much into your decision, right? You're going to still buy computers no matter what anyways, right? Um, I'm not as big of a proponent of a zero client or even thin thin clients, really, because there's a lot of things that still don't work very well in a virtual desktop environment, like Zoom meetings and, and you know, WebExes and conference, things like that. Sure. Because, uh, you know, you're streaming to too many points and, and the experience is laggy. Um, so it, it's still nice to have kind of like a physical, real computer on the other end, whether it's a Mac or a PC or, or a Chromebook or, or whatever. Well, and the other advantage there is, you know, if you've got something that's gone dramatically haywire with your VDI environment and people do actually have um, machines that can do processing on them, um, then there is still the possibility that, you know, in a in a larger full-scale disaster type of scenario, um, there is the possibility of uh, being able to continue doing some form of work, uh, even if you can't connect back into your network. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, what's it take from, you know, an architectural perspective and, you know, what are some of the methods uh, for getting the uh, mechanics behind the scene in place? 
uh, as well as some of the conversations around that. Um, an area that I, I think is also important to explore is the resource management uh, considerations with an always-on environment. And here I'm thinking of a couple of different things. I'm thinking of systems resources. I'm also thinking of human resources. Uh, so in the first case, right, if you're always on, uh, and you just referenced it a little earlier, right, you've got uh, even a four nines environment, you know, where do you slot in uh, time to actually bring down uh, mission critical systems to the business? And particularly if you've got a global footprint where you're, you know, mm -hmm. looking at uh, geographic regions that are in uh, overlapping time zones, right? If, if you've got a sun never sets type of environment, uh, you know, for your, your workforce, um, then again, it, it makes it additionally challenging uh, to navigate through, you know, how do you make the decisions about, you know, when you're taking things down that uh, effectively at some point they have to be patched, they have to be refreshed in some way. Yeah, no, and I, I get it. I, you know, it's always hard for those bigger companies or, or like governments too, right? Um, to kind of say, we're going to refresh our whole infrastructure and go virtual desktop. Um, I couldn't even imagine something like like the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management for the U.S. government, what they deal with when they go to buy desktops. It takes them years to negotiate deals. By the time they close a deal, they're no longer the latest, greatest thing. Um and I've never deployed virtual desktop in that big of an environment, but I could see where it's a case where you would just say, okay, this is what, what I would think I would do if I were in that case, is I would just build a completely separate virtual desktop environment in parallel while the other environment's running and just cut the other thing off at a certain point in time and rip the Band-Aid off. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners who've probably done that big of a deployment probably tell me I'm, I'm completely crazy and insane <laughs> for doing doing something like that. But um, like you said, when you have that global always on operation, there's never any optimal time um, to do anything. There's al It's always going to be inconvenient with someone. I mean, I know it's even difficult just having, you know, team meetings when you have, you know, a development team in India and maybe another one in California and one in New York trying to, you know, correlate a you know coordinate a time to have just have a meeting a one-hour meeting is difficult <laughs> right. alone coordinate a time like when you're going to shut a system off and you need engineers on here and if you have engineers on then you need it staff on hands make sure you have enough of them for um if you know if machines won't join to their domain and you know all that all that other little stuff we need to do it's kind of like an an all hands on deck type thing when you do do projects like that <laughs> Well, and I think there's another area to consider, you know, when you're effectively uh, saddled with the responsibilities of a leader, not just for um, the technical team, but really as that trusted resource for all of your business stakeholders, there's got to be room for accommodation where, you know, you can really uh, take the business case forward and explain these are what the needs are, you know, whether it's security, whether it's new feature sets, performance, whatever it is, um, there's got to be some opportunities that we've got uh, where these things are not going to be available for a period of time. And it's ultimately going to help serve to make all of us better, but it will be an inconvenience for somebody uh, and, you know, need to come to terms with how do we uh, find some common ground there uh, to determine what the case is, because you'll have some business leaders who are just adamant. They'll they'll tell you, um, no, there's no way you can't bring it down. That's it's going to you know disrupt our overlap with the workforce in China, 
And, mm-hmm. you know, therefore, um, you guys are going to have to figure out a way to do this, you know, that looks completely different than what you're planning. Um, being able to be skillful as a leader and articulate, you know, really what are uh, all the nuances that uh, can help elevate us as an organization and improve the work performance of people who are actually interacting with these systems on a day-to-day basis. Um, those are some some key points to me that uh, that that really bring forward your skills as a negotiator and a communicator. Um, and those aren't necessarily always things that are at the forefront of uh, strong engineering mentalities. Well, let's take this back. Let's take a step back here from from all these technical aspects aspects and talk about the leadership component of our podcast, right? So we're talking like a big project like this. One thing I've struggled with in my career, and I'm sure you have too, is you walk into a project, they need it, you know, tech, IT on the side, some technical lead or something like that. I find times that I'm almost always a person asking the questions like, okay, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? And what would make this project successful? Um, because if I know what what would make this project successful, um, then I kind of know how to plan everything, right? So if I know, if we go back to, you know, the Jocko Willink extreme ownership thing is the commander's intent, right? For everyone from the chain of command to kind of know what the commander's intent is. And this is me fishing for that, right? I'm like, okay, well, what, is, what would make this project successful? And then Brian, you say, well, okay, well, what would make this project successful is if we deploy these desktops and our downtime is only, you know, seven hours. Perfect. Then I know how to do that. I have seven hours of downtime that I can get that's acceptable that will make this product successful. I'm not stuck in this box, right? Where it's like, we can't have any downtime. Well, I can't upgrade any hardware and refresh anything, reboot any systems with zero downtime. I mean, it's just impossible. Like even Salesforce has five minutes of downtime. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's almost impossible. You almost have to be one of those humongous players with offices around the world to have zero downtime. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, uh, you know, part of why I was leaning on the leadership side of it is there is some negotiation and some communication that is going to be required in the process. And some of that may take kind of a technique that you just walked us through, uh, where you're almost putting words in somebody's mouth to help shape the path of what the change needs to be, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, even asking for someone to define what success would look like, um, sometimes they really have no idea. And, you know, that may take some negotiating sure. to go back and forth to get into some realistic parameters. It's, okay, what if you have 20 minutes between um, 8.40 and 9 a.m. on Tuesday? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, we're, we're really going to need more time than that. And, you know, and, and being able to go through and, and help articulate, you know, here are the challenges that we've got on our side. Here's effectively what's going to need to happen in order for this to be successful for us. Right. And, and that way there can be some uh, realistic dialogue uh, that takes place and helps you get to an effective solution. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, so like that's, that's exactly my, the reason why I asked that question because it makes every other stakeholder in the room ask the exact same question. And, and it stops them for a minute in my experiences. They stop and they go like, oh yeah, well, what would make this successful for me, for myself, for my team? Um, and then everything just starts coming out, right? 
it's that whole creative process thing that go again where we're throwing out ideas, but we're not necessarily accusing anybody of doing something wrong or that your idea is the best or this one's the worst. We're just trying to figure out collectively as a group, as a leadership team, what's going to make this project successful and how can we accomplish that from each side? And like you said, it, go, it goes into a whole negotiation process. Um, it, it's just something that everyone should know how to do to definitely ask the questions why, right? The why and the how, right? The why can help you get to the how, but you need to ask that why to figure out the how. Yeah, and it also ties back, I think, to what some strategic imperatives can be and, and you know, how you define some of those things for the organization. So, for example, um, you know, you start having a conversation around, um, you know, this is this is what we need to do to be able to, you know, take these systems offline and, uh, you know, make them more resilient for the organization. Uh, and then you get a lot of questions around, yeah, but but we don't want that. We we want something that looks a lot more like what Amazon provides. Okay, then let's start talking about what it takes to budget for three nines, for four nines, for five nines, right? All the way to uh, the theoretical zero nines, right? Um, all of that. I mean, start- even Amazon doesn't have zero nines. You <laughs> right. know, like, yeah. Well, and all of that starts to, you know, be a compounding investment. And yeah, so- you start you start uh, exponentially growing your cost, right? And talent and, and um, yeah, <laughs> equipment. And- well, and, and that's also part of where the understanding can take place, right? Because the, the business may have the expectation based off of, yeah, but this is what we can get at a consumer level. Um, to which point you can say, well, what do you think Google might be investing in that? You know, they've got a, a data center that's fault tolerant. That's the size of a small village. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's probably not necessarily. And a village for- of engineers inside of it. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and similarly, I think when you get to something more like a uh, recovery time objective uh, conversation, you know, uh, if we need uh, an RTO of two to four hours on a given system, uh, that doesn't necessarily, you know, it may be a legacy architecture type of thing. It doesn't necessarily, um, you know, play well with virtualization or uh, failover. Um, maybe you really have to resort to some kind of pure backup recovery uh, kind of approach with that system. Then when you have the conversation, uh, you may be able to determine that, okay, let's measure what the costs are. Here's what it looks like today. And here's what it would look like if we went for a premium, you know, this is the fastest we can possibly recover this thing. The business may then back off on what it believes its demands are. If it really understands what's the uh, uh, the overall spend and the complexity uh, to get to what uh, the business may believe its wishes are for what those recovery time objectives are, everyone would like everything to be available always at all times. Um, but mm-hmm. getting there, uh, really does come with, um, some complexity and cost. So being able to, uh, negotiate, you know, having those types of conversations and create that kind of understanding across the table. Um, that's also part of what can come back twofold, right? The first is, uh, it, it actually makes us more effective in being able to deliver what, uh, ultimately is sort of that, um, qualified compromise position where, you know, hey, it may not be ideal that it's going to take us a full business day, but we understand the reasons behind it. Therefore, it's acceptable. And then the second piece is, okay, now we understand what our current state is for today, but 
in our next year's budget, we want to plan to be able to shift that so that our RTOs uh, move from eight hours recovery time to four hours. You know, what's mm-hmm. it going to take? And let's make sure that we earmark those dollars in, in next year's budget. It's going to take you putting a whole bunch of stuff, not Amazon's cloud, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that's that's the the traditional thing with IT and disaster recovery, right? It Getting the machines is no problem. Getting the hardware is no problem. Getting the engineers there is no problem. Recovering your data from backups and remote locations takes forever. <laughs> I mean, there, there's nothing like going to, to a backup scene where you need to recover something from some type of disaster. The engineer pushes a button and he's like, I'm just going to stand here and wait. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's always your your biggest factor, right? Um, but, but going back to... Um, the leadership component of this when, when we're discussing and we're negotiating um, as, as we're sitting here, you know, trying to get that RTO um, to, you know, a, a higher, um, you know, level of nines, you know, a higher service level. Um, how are you planning for talent with that? How are you having that negotiation with, with maybe the CEO or the board? I mean, for things like this, we're probably going to a board of directors, right? Not even a CEO looking for, I mean, if we're talking about going from four nines to like 11 nines, we're talking, we probably have to go to some kind of board to get, you know, probably close to a billion dollars, right, <laughs> um, of money. So how are you, how do you go about having this conversation with people who are not even technical whatsoever? Because, I mean, you can't kind of have this conversation without going down some type of technical road, right? Yeah, I I think it starts with options. It can't just be a black and white, you know, here's the set of demands. You've told me that this is what you want. Here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what it takes. And that's it. The end of discussion. There have got to be some options on the table. And with those options, there has to be an honest discussion around where are there advantages, where are there some clear uh, cost investments that, you know, may be outside the scope of what we thought we would have to spend on something like this. Uh, And it may take more than one year. (laughs) to make the proper investment in some of these things. And then, you know, what might be an area of compromise where we understand, hey, we're either running lean or we're running less skilled than it would be ideal for us to be um, for a period of time because we've got to navigate through what the current state is. So I think being able to come equipped with those options, that's what helps people feel like, hey, I'm not just some tech guy here ready for a blank check so that I can go spend money on, you know, some cool gadgets that I like to play with. It's I understand what the business demands are. I understand what the business desires are. And I am working in alignment with fulfilling, you know, those demands and desires. Here's the three options that we can lay on the table that are really going to help us effectively resource this. And, you know, then when those options are uh, articulated in that way, I I think it helps cultivate uh, a perception of partnership, that there's uh, a willingness that that you're in this with the business, you know, everyone's in it together. Um, It's not just two separate factions kind of, you know, pushing for their own strong opinions on something. Uh, and that's what really helps, I think, drive to effective aligned outcomes, right? That's when you can have the business then stand behind the decisions that are made, particularly when other folks in the workforce may say, hey, we're all underwater here with our workload. And what we really need are, you know, a few more account managers uh, to be able to help us carry the load on on some of our client volume. 
the business can then be there to help articulate, no, we got it and we, we completely understand here's why we need to make some of these other investments today. And it's actually going to help us go faster in the future. Um, there, there will be end in sight, right? Whatever they need to do to help mitigate uh, what that change management looks like. No, and I think, think your key words there you said is, I understand what the business needs and what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, it, this goes back to maybe even before IT was around and finance, right, was always the most technical, most educated, most math oriented black box that people could never understand. They're like, I oh, know, we just give them some invoices and then they figure out how we make money, right? Um, so I think accounting departments and CFOs have dealt with this a long time. Um, and I think you know, understanding the business is what they had to do years and years ago, you know, depending on what industry you're in. And this is kind of like what we're seeing technology leaders are having to do, right? We're having to understand the business so that we can make our cases when we're going to spend exorbitant amount, exorbitant amount of bouts of capital, whether it's talent or, or technology or, or investment and anything. Um, we need to be able to understand the business and speak the language of business. Um, and not drown them out and, and you know, uh, tech new babble speak, as they like to say, right? We can't give them, you know, all the acronyms and everything. Uh, we got to be able to articulate it and be presentable and have a way to understand the business as well. Um, and, you know, the same can't be said for the business. A lot of times the business doesn't understand IT. The expectation is not there quite as much as um, it used to be. But it seems like as we're going forward and technology is becoming more apparent, um, you know, business leaders are demanding that their leaders understand technology. And um, we've seen that, you know, we'll go back to your Domino's pizza example again. And he's like, you know, we're a technology company who just happens to sell pizza. Um, it's the same thing. So they, they've taken that culture and they're like, okay, well, you know, the business leaders, you guys need to understand technology because this is how we're going to drive sales and this is how we're going to grow our business. Okay. And rent. <laughs> <laughs> All, all very viable points, Nick. And, you know, I think the we've talked about kind of that one side of the resource and talent management that really intersects with what the understanding of the business needs to be. And certainly uh, coming down to uh, understanding how do you uh, right size the talent for your environment is one component of that. I think today there is uh, so much competition in every industry that finding uh, talent that is, you know, both skilled and experienced, the uh, compensation figures that go along with resources of that type uh, are mind blowing to a lot of people who sit in other parts of the business. And particularly when they see someone who, you know, to their mind should be, uh, you know, someone who's coming in at a junior pay scale because of their age. Um, but you know, especially compared to someone else who might be a senior uh, engineer within the environment. Um, part of what they don't understand is that, you know, from a competitive pay perspective, the market demand is so intense that uh, sometimes you really have to look at these investments in a very different way. So again, I think it's incumbent as a leader that you come equipped with options. It can't just be, we're gonna have to pay high six figures every single time we're going out to get someone new <clears throat> who has a particular skill set that we require. There also has to be a conversation around who has the acumen and the interest who's already in the workforce that we can develop and grow 
um, get the proper training, you know, pursue some certifications, whatever it may be, um, so that we can enable those who are already here. How do you also, as a leader, then quell the fear of those who have been in your workforce for uh, a long time and they're suddenly frightened because you're bringing in technology that's so new and different from anything that's within their experience? Um, you'll have some who, who are ready to step forward and say, hey, whatever that is, I want to learn that. But you've got others who are going to be in their comfort zone. And they may be a little fearful because it's, it may have been 10 years since they had to mm -hmm. take a, a certification of any time. And so, uh, so that's ultimately, you know, again, where as leaders, we need to uh, help make the determination, you know, what can the transformation of our existing skill set look like for those who are already in our talent pool. And that may look like some transitions that are very different for a variety of the folks in your workforce. Some of them may by necessity, have to transition out of your department. And that may be a good thing, or it may be, you know, a difficult decision to make. Others may not necessarily be scooted, uh, suited for any of the skills that are required any longer for the changes that you're planning to make, but maybe they've got some great uh, experience in some other areas where, mm -hmm. you know, hey, we've got uh, a lot of these governance needs now uh, where we need policies written or, you know, we need, um, you know, procurement processes or any of these other number of things, they may not necessarily be technical as their uh, first required set of skills, but having the technical background and experience uh, and also the capabilities to, to work in that new environment, that may be another effective transition for folks. And I'm, uh, I'm going to bring up something, you know, that I learned a long time ago, work in the hospitality industry. We used to have the saying, it's called the walk your shift, right? Walk around, talk to your staff, right? Build relationships with them. I'm not talking about be their buddy. Just have conversations with them and learn who they are, right? There's no reason when this big shift's coming down the road that you shouldn't be meeting with your people one-on-one -on -one going, hey, you know, um, Bob, you've been here for 10 years. You've been awesome. You do great work, you know, but, but I want to let you know here coming down the road, we're changing our architecture. Um, some of the stuff you're doing right now you're probably not going to be doing it in a year, but you know what? You've been a great team player. I want you to be part of this team. You know, you, you do good work. Um, you're always here to help out. Whatever you want to do here in the future, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you succeed, whether it's here in this organization or to help you find another role. Um, this is going to go back to something I always say when we have these conversations, right, Ryan? It's like, you're a leader. You should be out there with your hand out to help your people. And that's how you're going to build loyalty, right? You're not bribing them or anything. It just kind of goes with the game. You know, you trade, you train somebody in something, they go get an MBA and they leave. It's just part of the game, right? You know, but then you could also be hiring somebody who gets an MBA or has a master's in engineering. So it all kinds of evens out in the end anyways. Um, people look for leaders to help guide them to be advocates for them, to go to bat for them, to, to, you know, to be, to be that leader, right? When you think about that. So I really think when these big changes come down, you know, leaders should be sitting down at least with their immediate subordinates. You know, maybe, maybe you're a higher VP, you need to be sitting down with your directors um, and, and your junior level managers sort of directly under you have this conversation. Hey, I need you to go have this conversation with all of your people and let them know what's going on and offer them the same amount of help that I'm offering you. And you need to also offer yourself to everyone below them as well. Say, hey, you know what? 
my door is an open door policy. Literally anybody can come here and talk to me. I don't care if it's the janitor. If the janitor wants to talk to me, you know, the janitor is a member of my team. Anyone who's a member of my team is a, is a team member and I'm here to help the team be successful. One of the CEOs that I've worked with over uh, the course of my career uh, had a saying that I want every employee to have at least three career careers at this organization. And, uh, you know, what I love about that is exactly what you just talked about, Nick. That's what opens up the door possibility so that people don't feel like, hey, my job could be under threat if, you know, I'm not prepared for what's coming next, uh, particularly when you're dealing in a world of technology, right? You, you want to mm-hmm. know that there's some options for you to be able to transition. Now, one other area that I think this also touches on that I want to make sure that we cover is in this always on approach and the set of demands that come with that. There's also um, that increased uh, set of demands that come on uh, those who serve uh, fulfilling those SLAs, right? And so part of what this means is uh, when when you've got always on 24-7, you need to understand whether or not that really means you've got a 24-7 support culture. Uh, you've got uh, expectations that, you know, at 2 a.m., You've got someone uh, on your infrastructure team who should be expecting a phone call and, you know, they need to be prepared to jump out of bed uh, to to go uh, address a fire. Or are you actually paying for uh, that amount of overlap uh, in your workforce, whether it's you've got someone who is part of an MSP uh, who's helping to provide uh, that overlap for you, or you've got, um, you know, a uh, sun never sets uh, type of model where you can actually geographically uh, help build that overlap in. But one of those challenges that comes with that always on demand, in my opinion, is you really start edging towards the potential of burnout if you don't spend quality time uh, addressing uh, how exactly you're going to manage to ensuring that that overlap uh, is available for your human resources. No, that's that's a tough one, right? And it's especially hard for small organizations, right? Let's let's talk about the small to medium-sized business, something that we haven't talked about at all yet on this episode. You know, what does somebody do who's in the 10-person shop, right? The only IT guy, period. Um, that means they are the help desk. They are the software engineer. They are, you know, the PBX engineer. They're everything, right? Um, so that's probably, you know, the the most difficult position to be in when you're the only one, <laughs> right? And that's when you should probably be looking at when you get situations like that is leveraging an MSP, right? Maybe an MSP helps you get over the hump till the business gets big enough and then you can bring on another engineer. Um, maybe everything works out with the MSP just fine. It allows somebody else, you know, allows you to kind of go about your day. Um, but, you know, burnout, is something hard to deal with. And I think the more important thing too is that we look at recently is burnout um, and people are being pinged when they're on the vacation, um, which is the more concerning thing. When you're on call, you're on call and you're like, okay, well, I, I could be called at any moment in time. It's kind of expected on the individual when they run their rotation. They're like, okay, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning. Somebody might call me to, um, you know, to help them troubleshoot something on their network. Um, but when you're on vacation, that's when things, things are worse. And when, 
employees and staff members start getting really angry about having to do something, right? You're out with your family, you're, you're maybe out camping somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. Now you got to leave your family, go find internet. Um, those are the situations right there. I feel like, um, that really burn people out, at least in my experience in the past, it's the having to leave your family, your vacation, whatever you're doing on your off time to go answer a call for work. Um, you know, and, and leave and go put a server together at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> which right. I've done that before, uh, you know, have a server you part of pieces <laughs> trying to have it up in the morning time, you know, and like, you're like, okay, well, where's the Dell guy? You know, the, the office opens up in six hours. <laughs> um, so I think I've, I've seen some great things come across like that where people will leverage an MSP and they're like, Hey, you know, when you're on vacation, we lock you out of your accounts. You can't answer your email. You can't answer Slack messages. You can't log into virtual desktop. You can't do any of this. We lock you out of it because you are on vacation. Take that <laughs> moment to not worry about what's going on here um, and take the time to unwind and relax. That's great. Yeah, we, we've had a term for it where I've worked over many years. Workcation uh, yeah. is how we've referred to it. And, uh, you know, I, I say that only half jokingly because everything that you described is a reality that I think, you know, anyone who's worked particularly in uh, some type of uh, technology support role uh, has been confronted with at some point in their career. And it's, uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's one of those most critical factors with burnout. Um, another, uh, area that I think is, you know, part of what, uh, really drives that burnout is when you've just got this relentless demand, part of what that brings with it are these very tight timelines on very short project delivery cycles. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, a lot of what you see and, and you described it already, Nick, is you've got the hero mentality that emerges out of that. Um, and you know, that's great when you need it. Um, but you shouldn't need heroes to come in and rescue every situation. Uh, every time you've got an implementation, every time, you know, you've, uh, uh, got a situation where, um, you've had something go awry and you haven't resourced accordingly, uh, as a manager and therefore someone's coming in at 3am to build a server. Right. I mean, it's, it's great when you uh, can play that card maybe once in the career of someone who has to work in your organization because uh, there are always those moments of exception, right? And that's when you mm -hmm. roll up your sleeves and you step up and um, that's what, you know, good resources as well as good leaders will do. But being able to plan around that, I think, is, is a really critical component. And part of what you mentioned about, you know, if you're the only IT guy and you're playing all those roles, if I were an organizational leader uh, in a uh, resource uh, structure of that type, I would be very worried about how much knowledge runs one deep uh, mm -hmm. in my workforce around things that, you know, you, you really need more than one brain containing that information. <laughs> No, I guarantee you. And when we go back to the burnout topic again, um, if you're the leader and in charge of people, you should be helping to kind of protect them somewhat too from this happening, right? Um, whether you're scheduling more resources, overlapping things, go, going to back, going to upper management saying, hey, you know, like I can't have just one on-call guy. Um, you know, we need to make sure we have two on-call at at all times. Um, cause what happens if this guy comes in at six o'clock in the morning, um, you know, and then he's here till 
four o'clock the next morning, I can't have him on call the rest of the weekend, right? So it, it goes back to the thing of planning your resources and actually trying to be an advocate for your your staff, your employees, trying to treat them well, right? Treat them how you would want to be treated is the thing we've always heard. Well, in IT, like you said, it's it's extremely important because we're a lot of times when we're on call, we're expected to work 24-7, um, and we, we should be doing everything that we can as leaders to help make sure that they're successful and that they're not burn, being burnt out. And, you know, we should be checking in and talking with our people all the time, whether it's that change situation that's coming or not. You know, like, let's just go check in say, hey, you know, how how is work going? How's life? You know? Are you getting everything you can out of this job? What can I do for you? What do you need? Um, you know, is there anything I can do? You know, don't try to have as like you, 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 what do you, you know, like, you know, what's wrong here? What's that? You know, try to frame it where you're always looking to help them instead of trying to, um, you know, ask them what's wrong. You know, I'm here to help you. How can I help you <laughs> type deal, you know? <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, kind of helping to close uh, that particular topic, ensuring that you are being proactive as you're talking about and ensuring that your workforce is taking adequate time off so that they're not starting to run into counterproductive behaviors, that they're not starting to see the erosion of their morale, right? When you've got people and, and you know, hey, I've been running these guys hard. They've been uh, working one full weekend out of every month, they, you know, continuously are pulling 70 hour weeks. Um, that's not sustainable indefinitely. You got to take your foot off the gas at some point and say, Hey guys, you know, let's, uh, let's celebrate the success of what happened. Um, I know that we pulled a couple of uh, late nights and a couple of weekend nights. I want you to find some time. Let's make sure it's not everyone at once, but let's find some time during the work week. Uh, take a four day weekend with your family or, you know, those things that help to uh, reward by returning some of the capacity that was lost um, by saying, hey, let's, let's, uh, you know, I recognize what's happened. Um, maybe there's a monetary reward that goes with it, but I want you to know that this is for behavior that's not just expected as part of the norm. Right. This is recognized mm -hmm. as going above and beyond, and we're not going to continue to run everyone this hard. Um, but in, as a show of thanks and getting through this, um, let's give you some of that capacity back and uh, and let you take some time or, you know, any of those things that uh, ultimately uh, help someone feel like, hey, I'm, I'm recognized and um, there's something being given back to me so that they come back refreshed and ready to be productive once again. No, I like that. It goes goes back to this, you know, old military saying, right? Leaders eat last, right? <laughs> you always let everyone through the line and you eat last because how terrible does it look when you go up there and you eat first? So if we take that into our frame, you know, we're asking, always ask people, hey, man, you know, I, I just need to make sure that you're here on call and you've been on call, you know, two times. Can you just do it again for me? And then you go and take off and take, you know, a two-week <laughs> vacation. People see that. They notice things like that. You might not think they notice it, but people notice it. You need to make sure that you're taking care of your people. If you take care of your people, they're going to take care of you. Um, and it has to be genuine. If you're not genuine when you're doing it, people are going to see that too. 
Uh, that's right. I think and, uh, that's where I'll leave that. <laughs> hey, and, and the fact is, uh, if you don't remember the phrase leaders eat last, you might remember the phrase, the captain always goes down with the ship. <laughs> <laughs> you will be experiencing that one momentarily if you don't. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick, I'm going to ask you, because you usually ask the question of our guests, but what are some books that leap to mind um, that help address some of this uh, uh, fast paced, always on sort of demand that we see more and more of today? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I think I have a book per se, but one thing I, I have always tried to do is there, there's this whole thing about mindfulness lately, right? And trying to be aware. I've been trying to be more present. Um, you know, we, we have technology around us all the time. How about when you get home, you take your phone, set it down, don't pick it back up especially for those of, those of us who have children. Um, sometimes we grab our phones, we sit down, and we're kind of ignoring what's going on because we're buried in our phone. Um, so I would say just try to be more present in the moment. Put your phone down, um, have conversations with people, um, and just try to be there. What about you, Brian? Do you, ha do you have any books? Um, there's one that came to mind that uh, is – you know, more uh, about culture overall and how do you deal with sort of all these interconnected components of expectation. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily about um, technology uh, explicitly, but technology factors into it. There's just a lot of these other um, observational uh, mindfulness opportunities that we can take from a leadership perspective uh, that help feed into uh, how do we really know uh, what is going to help create a long-term sustainable successful culture and particularly as we continue to go through all these you know leaps and bounds with evolutionary changes uh, that technology delivered to us so this is one by daniel coyle called the culture code uh, and it's really, you know, more targeted around um, how do you manage towards uh, group dynamics to help make groups work effectively uh, towards, um, you know, more centralized success. Yeah. And I'll, I just, a book just popped to mind for me. Um, it's by Dale Carnegie. Uh, it's how to, uh, geez, what is it? How to, how to win influence, friends, and influence, friends and influence people. people. Yeah. It was written like in the twenties and it's very corny when you read it, but the concepts behind it are still relevant today. Um, and it's not about, you know, uh, tricking somebody into doing something. It's just about de developing relationships and, and, um, how, how to manage those relationships and how to be a good person. There, there's great tidbits in that. And it's maybe what, like a 200 page book. It's not very sure. long at all. Um, oh, yeah. You could probably, you could probably read it in a weekend or if, or if you're a fast reader, like my wife who reads like 55 books a year, you could probably read it in a day, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I am not that person. <laughs> um, so I, I'd add that on the list uh, that as that just popped into mind. You know, and that brings to mind also uh, there's there's a an article that's written based off of one of the concepts out of that book um, that uh, I've seen recently was the most downloaded PDF of all time from the Harvard Business School, uh, and that's called Who's Got the Monkey? I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever seen that one, but that's uh, that's related to the Dale Carnegie. Uh, time management principles that are explored and uh, how to win friends and influence people. I'll have to check that one out. It's easily available on the web. Download your PDF copy today. 
<laughs> Big plug for the Harvard Business Review there, huh? <laughs> no, I think you can get it from all sorts of resources at this point. It's It's been around. I think that article has been around also uh, since about the time I was a tot. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's old. Just to show you that, uh, like when we're talking about these leadership concepts, a lot of times there's nothing new with them. They've been around for a long time. Amen. Don't let that stop you from downloading our next episode of lead.exe. All right, with that, uh, thanks, thanks for being on, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nick.